I'm Andrea from Lighthouse. Welcome. Thank you for coming. This is yeah. This is this is exciting. Can you tell I'm excited? Are you excited? Yeah. Tonight is this killer reading. It's like the story of my literary crushes, all in like five acts. It's going to be amazing. Um, and with, this is our 12th annual Lit Fest. That's that's cool, right? Like 12. 12 is lucky. 13 is unlucky. So I'm glad you guys are here for this one. Um, so tonight is a big reading with with some authors we somehow uh, horn swoggled into coming. We have, in alphabetical order, we have Jeff Dyer, <laughs> Renee Gladman, <laughs> Rebecca Mackay, <laughs> Sarah Manguso, yes! and Elizabeth McCracken. <laughs> They're each going to get up here and read, and I'm going to do this thing where I just tell you who they are right up front so you don't have to actually hear from me again. And I know that's sad, but it's also happy, isn't it, <laughs> that you won't have to see me again up here. Um, so we're going to start by saying that our first reader, Jeff Dyer, is the author of four novels, two collections of essays, and many genre-defined books. Some of his books are available here in the tent via the tattered cover. Have you guys noticed? We have the tattered cover here in this very tent. And they waving, waving ready to help you consume some of the literature that you're going to be hearing tonight. Um, some of his books include White Sands, Out of Sheer Rage, Wrestling with D.H. Lawrence, which Steve Martin called the funniest book he'd ever read. Awesome. Right? That's a pretty good... Steve Martin, he's pretty funny himself. Um, Renee Gladman is the author of nine published works. And actually, ten. Did you know ten? Because there's a companion book that is coming out. It is on its way to Lighthouse, um, I hope. It's, it's a book of drawings, and we're very excited to get that one. But her books include The Ravikians and most recently Calamity is a collection of linked essay fictions on the intersections of writing, drawing, and community. She's a lovely human being and a great writer. So she'll be reading tonight as well. Uh, Rebecca Mackay, not to be outdone, is the Chicago-based author of the novels The Bar Borrower and The Hundred Year House and the story collection Music for Wartime. Um, we have actually seen during this week her delivery date of her next novel, um, which was due, was it yesterday, at 5 p.m. New York time, Eastern time, and she got it in, I think, at, at 4.55 p.m. Eastern time. So Denver already has a good reputation five minutes early, man. When you're here, it's the altitude. Um, it's going to, is it coming out, do we know? About exactly a year. In about exactly a year. So just in time for next Lit Fest. Um, Sarah Manguso is the author of seven books, including 300 Arguments, an Essay and Aphorisms, Two Kinds of Decay, The Guardians, and Ongoingness, The End of... Um, I, I'm just totally adding this because I don't have it written down. The end of a no, 
diary. <laughs> I was going to say the end of a notebook, the end of a diary, as well as two poetry collections. She's here. We're so excited. And she's going to be reading. And last but not least, uh, Elizabeth McCracken is the author of five books, including Thunderstruck and Other Stories. Here's Your Hat, What's Your Hurry, the novels The Giant's House and Niagara Falls All Over Again, and the memoir An Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination, all stunning works. Every single one of these authors, you should buy every single one of their books. I don't care if you have to mortgage your house <laughs> or if you have to, you know, I don't care what you have to do, you should get all these books. Um, they're all back there, a lot of them are. Um, so also, just to not neglect my duties, I should mention the Literary Circus fundraiser. Are some of you attending? Yes. Oh, some of you. I mean, it's like almost a dull roar of people <laughs> attending the Literary Circus fundraiser. It's our 20th anniversary, so we're having a circus. What else would you do on your 20th anniversary? Um, it's a week from tomorrow. There will be food. There will be drinks. There will be circus acts. And I'm just going to leave that to your imagination. Um, so anyway, without further ado, I'm going to bring up Jeff Dyer. Thank you all for being here. Uh, hi, everyone. Should I adjust the mic? Yes. Because Andrea is so incredibly short. <laughs> um, yeah, do you want to adjust so it's really... I so uh, want to adjust. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah. I hope it's not going to symbolically sag halfway through this performance. Uh, okay, thank you, Andrea. It's been such fun being here, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just gorgeous. And I'm going to read you this thing. It's the title piece of my, uh, my latest blockbuster, which is called White Sands. And it's... Uh, I'll leave you to work out what it is, really. Is it a story? Is it an essay? Well, is it funny? Is it awful? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that my wife and I were driving south on Highway 54 from Alamogordo to El Paso. Jessica was driving... It was early evening. We were about 60 miles south of Alamogordo and the light was fading. A freight train was running parallel to the road, also heading south. Hitchhiker, I said, pointing. Shall we pick him up? Shall we? Jessica was slowing down. We could see him more clearly now. A black guy in his late 20s, clean and not looking like a maniac. We slowed to a crawl and took a good look at him. He looked fine. I lowered my window, the passenger window. He had a nice smile. Where are you going, he said. El Paso, I said. That'd be great for me. Sure, get in. He opened the door and climbed into the back seat. Our eyes met in the mirror. Jessica said hi. Appreciate it, he said. You're welcome. Jessica accelerated and soon we were back up to 70 and drawing level once again with the long freight to our left. Where have you come from? I asked, twisting round in my seat. I could see now that he was perhaps older than I'd initially thought. He had deep lines in his face, but his eyes were kind and his smile was still nice. Albuquerque, he said. I was slightly surprised. 
the logical way to have got to El Paso from Albuquerque would have been to go straight down I-25. Where are you two from, he said. London, I said. England. Ah, the kingdom, he said. <laughs> right. I was facing straight ahead again because I worried that twisting around in my seat would give me a crick neck to which I am prone. I thought so, he said. I love your accent. What about you? Arkansas, originally. That's where my mother's from, said Jessica. El Dorado, Arkansas, before she moved to England. After this exchange, we prepared to settle into the occasionally interrupted silence that tends to work best in these situations. We had established where we were from and where we were going, and a pleasant atmosphere filled the car. Then, less than a minute later, this pleasant atmosphere was changed absolutely by a road sign. Notice, do not pick up hitchhikers. <laughs> Detention facilities in area. I had seen the sign. Jessica had seen the sign. Our hitchhiker had seen the sign. We had all seen the sign. And the sign had changed our relationship totally. What struck me was the plural. Not a detention facility, but detention facilities. Several of them. The notice and I took some heart from the fact that the sign described itself as a notice rather than a warning, did not specify how many, but there were clearly more than one. <laughs> I did not glance at Jessica. She did not glance at me. There was no need, because at some level, everyone was glancing at everyone else. <laughs> as well as not glancing, no one said a word. I've always believed in the notion of the vibe, good vibes, bad vibes. After we saw the sign, the vibe in the car, which had been a good vibe, changed completely and became a very bad vibe. <laughs> this was a physical fact. Somehow the actual molecules in the car underwent a chemical change. The car was not the same place it had been a minute earlier, and the sky had grown darker. That was another factor. We soon came to the facilities which had unmistakably been designed with detention in mind. Both places were set back from the road, surrounded by high walls of razor wire and brightly lit by arc lights. There were no windows. In the intensity and single-mindedness of the, their desire to contain menace, they exuded it. At the same time, both places had something of the quality of IKEA outlets. <laughs> I wish they were IKEA outlets. <laughs> it would have been so nice if our hitchhiker had said that he'd come to buy a sofa or some kitchen units and that his car had broken down beneath the weight of flat packs. We could have sympathised with that. As it was, no one said anything. No one said anything, but I know what I was thinking. I was thinking that I'd never been in a position where I so wished I could wind back the clock just one or two minutes. I'd have loved to wind back the clock to say to Jessica... Shall we pick him up? And heard her reply, No, let's not. Let's stay on our own. And sped past, leaving him where he was. But you cannot wind back the clock in this life. Not even by two seconds. Everything that has happened stays happened. Everything has consequences. As a consequence, we couldn't have not picked him up, but I could have asked him to get out. I could have said, Look, man, I'm sorry, but in the circumstances, would you mind getting the fuck out of our car? <laughs> 
I could have done this, but I didn't for several reasons. First, I was worried that if I did suggest he get out, he might go berserk. Second, I was worried that by asking, or by telling him really, to get out, I would be being rude. So, instead of asking him to get out, we drove on in tense silence. The car sped along. There seemed no point slowing down. In any situation, there is always something positive to emphasise. In this one, it was the fact that there were no traffic hold-ups at all. (laughs) Jessica was gripping the wheel. No one was speaking. The silence was unendurable but impossible to break. Unsure what to do, I turned on the radio. We were still tuned to a classic rock station that we'd been listening to earlier in the day before we got to White Sands, and as soon as the radio came on, in the fading light of New Mexico, I recognised the piano tinkle and swish of Riders on the Storm. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of The Doors, but I did not want to hear this song now. It was just unbelievable. A few moments later, we heard Jim Morrison crooning, There's a killer on the road. His brain is squirming like a toad. Having turned on the radio with such disastrously appropriate results, it seemed impossible now to turn it off. And so the three of us just sat there listening. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Uh, This is a literature festival. You're not here to enjoy yourselves. Jessica followed the advice offered by Jim Morrison elsewhere in his oeuvre. She was keeping her eyes on the road and her hands upon the wheel. I kept my eyes on the road and lay my, and my hands in my lap. Day was still turning to night. The lights of oncoming cars were dazzling and did not augur well. The song continued. Ray Manzarak was doing his jazzy little solo on the electric piano or whatever it was. We are in a totally nightmarish situation, I thought to myself. The rain on the record made it seem like it was raining here as well, under the clear skies of New Mexico south of Alamogordo, heading towards El Paso. Before I could pursue this thought, the guy in the back seat cleared his throat. In the tense atmosphere of the car, the sound was like the blast of a gun going off. Listen, man, he said. Yes, I said. Jessica had said yes, too. (laughs) At exactly the same time, and the sound of that double-barreled query erupted into the car in a volley of desperate good manners. Let me explain, he said. An explanation was so precisely what we wanted. In the circumstances, the only thing we could have wanted more was an unsolicited offer to get out of our car and turn himself in to the authorities. I caught his eyes in the mirror. You often see this in films, the eye of the person in the car, framed by the rear-view mirror, which is framed in turn by the windshield, which is framed in turn by the cinema screen. Basically, the look in those eyes is never benign. It is always heavy with foreboding. I met his eyes. Our eyes met. Because of all of these associations, it was impossible to read the look in his eyes. Also, I'd recently seen an exhibition of photographs by Taryn Simon called The Innocents. The pictures were of men and women, usually black, 
who had been convicted of terrible crimes. Some of them had served years of their unbelievably long sentences, but then, having won the right to DNA testing, they'd had their convictions overturned. It was not just that there was an element of doubt or that the conviction was questionable due to some technical, uh, some procedural technicality, excuse me. No, there was simply no way they could have done the terrible things for which they'd been convicted. Looking at these faces, you try to deduce innocence or guilt, but it's impossible. Innocent people can look guilty, and guilty people can look innocent. Anyone can look like anything, innocent or guilty. From the faces, it's impossible to judge. But while it's terrible that they were convicted of these terrible crimes, these crimes were committed by someone. It's even possible that the reason some of these people had been wrongly convicted was that these crimes, these terrible crimes, had been committed by the person in the back of our car. (laughs) Who, speaking slowly, said... Guess that sign freaked you out, huh? (laughs) Well, that is putting it mildly, I said. Also, frankly, that song did not exactly set our minds on his own. Well, let me tell you what happened, he said. That would be great, I said. I sometimes think that this is all, all any of us really want from our time on Earth. An explanation, set the record straight, come clean, let us know where we stand so that we can make well-informed decisions about how, how to proceed. I did some things in my past. I've been to jail, he said. I've done some time, you hear what I'm saying? I got out more than a year ago, but now I'm just hitching, trying to get to where I need to be. I tell you, brother, I just want to get to El Paso. Well, in the circumstances, I said, I cleared my throat. It was one of those situations in which no one could speak without first clearing their throat. (laughs) In the circumstances, I said, I think it would be better all round if we could just drop you off. (laughs) Better for you, he said, not better for me. Well, I suppose that's true, but in the circumstances, as well as constantly clearing my throat, I was constantly using the phrase, in the circumstances. (laughs) In the circumstances, it was inevitable. Well, the truth is, I went on, we were hoping to have a nice, relaxing ride, and now that, that do- now that doesn't seem at all possible. In the circumstances, in fact, it seems extremely unlikely. See, here's the thing, he said. I'm not inclined to get out of the car. It must be emphasised that he did not say this at all threateningly. He was simply stating his position, but it was impossible to state this particular position without conveying an element of threat. I was worried that he was the kind of person who suffered from mood swings, violent mood swings. I suffer from them myself, but now my mood was not swinging so much as plunging, or, if such a thing is possible, swinging violently in one direction. (laughs) Jessica was gripping the wheel and keeping her eyes on the road. I was starting in some way to feel that it was predominantly her fault that we had got into this situation. If we had been on our own, I mean, if we'd somehow been in this same situation, I not on our own, but somehow on our own, I would probably have lost my temper and told her as much. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Uh, now we have Renee. Yeah, another adjustment. <laughs> he is so, 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 so,
should have done that nice for you. Yeah, Thank you. it's like uh, leaving Hello. the toilet lid up when you're. Uh... <laughs> the toilet lid. I'm so glad that all of you came out. I'm really happy to read tonight. Um, I'm going to read from Calamities. Um, I'm going to read from the portion of the book called The Eleven Calamities, of which there are 14 sections. Um, and partly I'm doing this for my students, if any of them are here tonight. Um, we're working on intersections of drawing and writing and poetry, and so I wanted to uh, read some of these texts to let them know uh, where I'm coming from, if they don't know yet. Um, so I'll do that. I'm going to read a few sections from The Eleven Calamities. Here we go. This is number six of the eleven. I was trying to write about having drawn on a morning that was held in fog. I wanted to write about the drawings I'd done and I wanted to write about how I'd arrived there through writing. I looked at the drawings. There were hundreds of them. They were numbers, so I read their numbers out loud. I was trying to put the drawings in a line without touching the drawings, which were now back in their box. You couldn't touch the drawings for very long because they were fragile and liked to absorb things from the object world. My drawings liked dust and fingerprints and sugar from dates. My drawings had names like PA210 and PA04 and they lay in harmony in the archive box. But somewhere in the object world, I decided I would talk about the drawings. I give them, give them language so that I could say they weren't language exactly. They were underneath, something appearing out of something being exposed. And I wanted to say it was language with its skin peeled back, but you couldn't use peeled back language to tell an audience that the drawings were language peeled back. You had to use language with its cover and point away from language to show how language could go around exposed. Language was beautiful exposed. It was like a live wire set loose, a hot wire burning, leaving trace. If you looked into language this way, you saw where it burned, the map it made. The wire was a line, but because it was electrified, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't lie still. It thrashed, it burned, it curled and uncurled around itself. It was a line, but one that moved, sometimes forward, but mostly up, then back, then over itself, then out, then up, then curling in one place until the mark grew dark then out forward and up into a rectangle, then inside the rectangle and around, circling with small, tight movements. I was amazed that I was talking about wires when really I was talking about prose. I was talking about how it was to write, but doing it through drawings, but drawings were language, and using wires to spell it out, but I was doing this on a foggy morning where there were neither drawings nor wires. There was a table upon which sat a computer and I was staring at a screen imagining the drawings I made and wanting them to teach me how to talk about the line, the line in art, which I could use to talk about the line in language because you'd need to know they were the same line. There was not a thing different about them. They entered blank space and made a problem for the page. What next, where to go? And they were lovely in themselves. I buried lines of language in the drawings, but the lines weren't trying to say anything definitive. It was usually a question they wanted to ask, but not one I felt like enumerating in that morning where hours had gone by, one hour, and the fog had remained. 
With this city, you never knew whether there would be fog all day or just in those first mornings of the mo first moments of the morning. I wanted to expose something about the fog, so I sat down in language, language that never had seen fog, which was the problem I was having. I wanted to write about something of which I had no understanding. I didn't understand lines and couldn't tell whether anyone else did. I read about lines in art and couldn't understand why they wouldn't talk about language. Monica Grismala said drawing is a process of thought which is conducted by the hand. And she was an artist. And though she was using language to explain her art, it was her art that most concerned her. Drawing was a process of thought that was true and so and especially was writing. And we wrote through the hand, even if it was typing, we used our body to write. Thus, drawing is writing, was how I wanted the quote to go on. And to write was to think, to make lines was to draw, and lines were the essence of writing. I made a line, and though it couldn't be read, the narrative of my line began instantly. I made a line, it couldn't be read, but I felt the story in my body. It was as experimental as everything else. I made the line while talking in my head, which is what I did while I wrote. So I was writing, but it was drawing that had accumulated. Number seven of the 11 calamities. You would drink something and it would bring you back to the long table at which you sat and the writing that needed to be done. The writing that would be the beginning of forming a new line between writing and drawing that extended into a story of writing and drawing, then became a story of writing and drawing, and then a novel taking the same terms and asking them to build a room or a series of rooms or a series of fields in which the sheer fact of one's wandering could bring one upon a moment in which drawing and writing were intertwined, encountered as one gesture moving across space and making the body want to sit down and respond in some correlating way, correlating because it would be a conversation that ended, always begun and staggered and begun, rupturing, never completing itself, rather endlessly repeating, starting again and again in the sense that sometimes beginnings are slow and last forever and everything you need is within them. Number eight of the 11. I wrote and considered another espresso on a day so hot, sweat poured down my back. And even this made a line between writing and drawing, another line that would require articulation, itself articulating. You were sweating down your back when again the idea came to write, to write about what has happened outside of writing, but having everything to do with writing. I got up and left the cafe only to return two days later, submitting my body to the same conditions, the sun bearing down upon me, dividing the field of my work into an upper and lower landscape, two parcels lying side by side. The parcels were important and differed from each other in a way that would be revealed through writing. I was sweating and couldn't think any longer, but liked to go to this place and sit and drink coffee and grow very, very hot. It was too hot to write, but these landscapes were forming around words that were on my pages and on the pages of a few of the books I had with me. One of the books w was an autobiography written as a theoretical essay, as a book of fragments about what one has read and eaten and seen in various parts of the world, the photos one has taken. 
And after moving across all these pages, you arrive to the last where sat a word wholly different from any other word in the book. It was a departure that seemed to want to go from the word as a signifier to the word as an entry made of fibers that could be drawn out across the page until that word could no longer be read, but was still enough like a word that you tried to read it anyway. This act formed the upper land shape. There was another word in another book that couldn't be translated, but which brought to mind a place in the back of another place. This formed the lower land shape and recalled to me something Rosemary Waldrop said, misremembering her translation of Edmund Jabez, the book at the back of the book, where all this writing was heading and where the day already was. You were in a field, an unidentified country, and all the lines were illuminated and lifted out of the ground. Number nine of the 11. I made the same drawing every day for 433 days and gave each a number. I tried to number the drawings according to order of creation and mostly achieved this. I made the drawing, I drew, and then I turned the page. I lifted the page, I turned it back over the place it had just been. No, it was more behind that place. I lifted the completed drawing and I turned it back with care. I placed it behind itself. That is not right. I lifted, I turned. The drawing lay not over the place it just was, but behind it, but not beneath the subsequent drawing. I would finish the new drawing and lift it up to find the old drawing. Rather, I would turn the new drawing over such that it lay on top of the old as long as I was drawing. As long as I was drawing, each new drawing lay lightly to the left of the one it succeeded. It was like laying folds of cloth. I laid them down but this wouldn't be how I would wear them and place them in closets. The drawings were not alive, yet they lay on top of one another. I treated them gingerly. I drew, I laid the drawings. They were stacked, made to lie on top of one another. They were oldest, closest to the front, then younger as you moved deeper into the pad I was then using. Because I had this pad, I did not need to number the drawings immediately. I lifted one up. It seemed done. I was happy with it. It was a day like any other where I sat to draw and drew because this was my new way of writing and wrote because this was the only way I could draw, drawing seeming crucial now to my thinking. I wrote to think. I lifted. I turned. I made adjacent spaces. And for a long time, I didn't number them. Numbering seemed to indicate that something was done. You put a number on it and place it in a box and let a stack grow. You looked into the box as if for illuminated text and found these drawings. These were the drawings you drew. That's what you were trying to say. I was drawing these drawings, finishing them, giving them each a number, then placing it in a box. And I looked at the box lovingly. I loved the box. But it wasn't something that I talked about immediately to anyone because drawing was embarrassing. I was not writing, I was drawing. Yet I was drawing writing, so I was writing. But at the beginning, I didn't know how to say this. I wrote a calamity. I wrote another calamity. Sometimes they made me sad because I thought when I finished them, I would be done with writing. I thought, I am writing myself out of writing by writing, and not because my taste for it was diminishing, nor because I was losing content. I was losing writing because I had suddenly begun to I was losing writing because I suddenly began saying what I needed to say. 
but it was because of drawing that this was happening. Thank you. Sarah, you next? No, Rebecca. Okay. Does, do people need to stretch? I feel like this would be like a good calisthenic break if people need to like move. It's cool. Um, so I'm going to read you just one. Oh, good. People are doing it. I'm so excited. I'm like, do it. I should lead, like do a Richard Simmons thing up here and lead you all in a... Um, I'm going to read you one um, quite short story from my collection. This is from Music for Wartime. Um, this is a story that I wrote on an airport floor in 2013. And um, it's one that I've been coming back to recently, um, just thinking about it a little bit more. But, um, it kind of recurs for me once in a while for reasons that will probably be apparent. Um, but this is called Everything We Know About the Bomber. The briefcase he used was not the black one shown in phone footage. The black case belonged to Marion Cates, deceased, and contained two egg salad sandwiches. That the black case appeared so persistently on the news and on social media, despite being of no interest to the investigation, delayed the apprehension of the bomber by as much as two days. We're told that in third grade, his English was lacking. We're told that he refused to smile for class photos, but his, he was a happy child, he was. We're told he loved painting. We're told that Miss Mullins is too overwhelmed to answer more questions at this time. He was on the FBI's radar, and then he was not. He was someone's son, and then he was not. He had a girlfriend, and then he did not. He had a beard, and then he did not. His sister understood him, and then she did not. There is no question that he acted alone. He suffered from plantar fasciitis, cluster headaches, a borderline attention disorder, and repeated sinus infections. His heart was broken five distinct times. This much is clear from the autopsy. He studied botany, specifically the sticky and miraculous unfurling of single grains of pollen into long strings that drilled down the length of the pistol and into the ovary. His graduate work addressed the lipids involved in these reactions. His research was nearly complete. His finances were in order. He paid bills the day before the bombing, which leads us to wonder if he thought he'd get away with it, go home and need electricity, water, credit cards, or if some ingrained societal obedience overrode all he knew of the future. His one indulgence was scarves. He spent more income proportionally on scarves than on entertainment. In 11 of the 16 photographs available to the public, he wears a silk scarf of one pale color or another, tucked expertly into the collar of his leather jacket. Affected, perhaps, but not for a European, which he was, after all, even if he was also American, even if he was also a thousand other things, not the least of which was vain. We agree collectively that the amount of time we have devoted to studying his skull shape, lineage, caffeine intake, and psychiatric history is neither helpful nor tasteful. 
on his bookshelf. Rambeau, Dostoevsky, Updike, Conrad, Nabokov, Murakami, Dickens, Proust, Mann. Much is made of the depth and diversity of his reading, but then much is also made of the absence of women from the shelves. The Stanford professor who has arranged access to the bomber's copious marginal notes plans, separately from his assistance in interpreting these notes for the interested government agencies, to release his own analysis of the man's literary thinking. How long we will have to wait, how long he will have to wait for clearance is naturally the issue. When the bomber was 11, he took a Hershey's bar from the pharmacy shelf and snuck it into the public restroom, where he consumed it in three bites. Terrified of the incriminating wrapper, he folded it in half, fourths, eighths, sixteenths, but decided against the toilet which might clog. He put the wrapper in his mouth and chewed it like gum, and when it was soft enough, he swallowed. Much is still uncertain, but on this one fact, we are clear. According to his mother, he was framed. According to his mother, the laws of the universe are incompatible with her son, her son doing this. We wonder collectively why it's so important to us that she understand what we understand, that yes, he did this, that he bought the ticket, that he wrote the letter, that the basement was full of chemicals, despite our wish to spare her. Wouldn't it be better if she thinks it's the rest of us who've gone mad? We ask if she hasn't been through enough, but we need her to understand. The briefcase he used was a gift from his sister, something to replace the canvas bag he'd carried through his academic life. She was the one who identified a scrap of it, charred leather and a bit of buckle. There are things we can assume that he was terrified, that he almost wet his pants, that he rehearsed, that he ordered a good meal that morning but wasn't able to eat it, that he prayed, that he didn't look at the faces in the crowd, that his own name, when he checked into the hospital, sounded like a death sentence, that he had pictured some glorious future, some altered universe in which history would be written by the victors among whom he'd be chief that he couldn't sleep the night before. But maybe those are facts about us, about the way we'd be. The bomber's ex-girlfriend is not ready to talk, but her roommate has given certain details. The fight about the keys, the time he broke the girlfriend's wrist, the addiction to Indian food. The roommate starts most sentences with, if I'd known, we are happy to allow her this. He liked to solve puzzles. He liked to fix machines. When his third grade teacher, Miss Mullins, told him there was not enough time to talk about sharks, he slowed the mechanism of the classroom clock. <laughs> Look, he said, I made the day longer. If he hadn't felt the need to watch the explosion, he'd never have fallen from the roof of the bank and would not have snapped his leg. Three days later, he wouldn't have stumbled, dazed, and infected to the hospital. He would not, when he saw the nurse's eyes, when he realized the police were on their way, have barricaded himself, wouldn't have taken the hostage, wouldn't have demanded the suicidal drugs, wouldn't have shot himself when they were denied, or so we assume. 
The country where he was born is on the map, but only a detailed map. It has a flag, but not a flag we've seen. His country is smaller than Luxembourg, larger than Liechtenstein, with a surprising number of sheep. <laughs> to be honest, we'd forgotten about his country. We aren't at all sure what he wanted. The night before his 23rd birthday, he sat in a mostly empty movie theater and watched Audrey Tautou run through the streets of Paris, suitcase in hand. As a botanist, he hated that the wrong things were blooming on screen. This was meant to be August, but here were tulips in the park. Each flower to him had a taste. He'd rarely tasted nectar, just a few curious times, the viscosity, if not the flavor, reminding him of his girlfriend, of afternoons on her small white bed. But he knew each flower's smell so intimately, so clinically, that when these tulips appeared, he felt it on the back of his tongue. He admired the director's brazenness. He assumed it wasn't ignorance in deciding what flowers bloomed when. He admired men who molded the universe like plastic. After this thought, the popcorn lost its flavor. We've gleaned all this from the video surveillance. <laughs> His mother stands on the porch and again and again asks why, till, the, till it doesn't sound like a word at all. It's a different why from ours. We are ready to accept this. He had a tooth pulled in the spring of 2012. He was allergic to strawberries. He excelled at tennis. There was no food in his refrigerator. He was dead before they could interrogate him. His blog has been erased. We plan to learn more. We plan to keep updated. We plan to look for patterns. We've obtained a new map with slightly different colors. <laughs> we will repeat these facts till they sound like history. We'll repeat them till they sound like fate. Thank you. such a good time. I'm going to read to you from the beginning of my new book, which is called 300 Arguments. And um, I think I'm going to read about 32 of them, but I haven't counted. A great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with a voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should try to write this or that thing I don't want to write, I know what they mean. You might as well start by confessing your greatest shame. Anything else would just be exposition. It can be worth foregoing marriage for sex. And it can be worth foregoing sex for marriage. It can be worth foregoing parenthood for work. And it can be worth, and it can be worth, excuse me, foregoing work for parenthood. Every case is orthogonal to all the others. That's the entire problem. I assume the cadets are gay, but then I see they are merely unafraid of love. 
They're preparing to go to war, and with so little time to waste, they say what they mean. At faculty meetings, I sat next to people whose books had sold two million copies. Success seemed so close, just within reach. On subway benches, I sat next to people who were gangrenous, dying, but I never thought I'd catch what they had. <laughs> What's worse, offending someone or lying to someone? Saying something stupid when it's your turn or not saying anything? Tell me which and I'll tell you your problem. The trouble with comparing yourself to others is that there are too many others. Using all others as your control group, all your worst fears and all your fondest hopes are at once true. You are good. You are bad. You are abnormal. You are just like everyone else. Some people ditch friends and lovers because it's easier to get new ones than to resolve conflicts with the old ones. Particularly if resolving a conflict requires one to admit error or practice mercy. I'm describing an asshole. <laughs> but what if the asshole thinks he's ditching an asshole? Inner beauty can fade, too. I used to avoid people when I was afraid I loved them too much. Ten years in one case. Then after I had been married long enough that I was married even in my dreams, I became able to go to those people, to feel that desire, and to know that it would stay a feeling. In a dream, my friend and I begin the act, and both immediately want it to be over, but we have to continue, impelled by some obscure reason. I wake wondering whether we could ever enjoy it. I think about it all day, really dedicate myself to it. I think about it for two more days, and that's how I fall in love with my friend. Like a vase, a heart breaks once. After that, it just yields to its flaws. In the morning, I wake amid fading scenes of different characters, different settings, all restatements of that first desire a ghost who haunts me as the beauty he was at 16. My friend learns Chinese and moves to China, but her limited vocabulary is good for grocery shopping, not for falling in love. When her heart breaks, she's obliged to ask, why won't you fuck me? <laughs> I've put horses in poems, but I've never written one. They just seem like such a good thing to put into literature. <laughs> Biographies should also contain all the events that failed to foreshadow. I remember a girl who was famous in school for having woken from a drunken blackout and said to whoever was there, Are you my judges? In real life, my healthy boyfriend said that he envied my paralytic disease, that I'd earned the right to a legitimate nervous breakdown. A few years later, he was in an accident and became paralyzed from the neck down. That's just bad writing. <laughs> it isn't so much that geniuses make it look easy, it's that they make it look fast. The man who had me in a phone booth married quickly after the affair ended. 
His novel had everything in it, the phone booth, the shame, the sash he sewed to wear over the surgical appliance in his belly. In the novel, it covers a plaster leg cast. The front page of his website is a glowing glass phone booth standing alone in snow. The book got bad reviews. He has two children. (laughs) We like stories that are false and seem true, realist novels, that are true and seem false, true crime, that are false and seem false, dragons and superheroes, or that are true and seem true, but it's harder to agree on what that is. Having a worst regret betrays your belief that one misstep caused all your undeserved misfortune. I don't write long forms because I'm not interested in artificial deceleration. As soon as I see the glimmer of a consequence, I pull the trigger. My teacher cried while I listened. None of his books had ever made money, not even the famous one, he said. He'd spent his life trying to write perfect books, and when he tried to make money, he couldn't. I didn't think I'd ever feel as old as he seemed at that moment, but here we are. (laughs) The difference between writers under 30 and writers over 40 is that the former, like everyone their age, already know how to act like famous people, people whose job it is to be photographed. I wish I could ask the future whether I should give up or keep trying. Then again, what if trying, even in the face of certain failure, feels as good as accomplishing? What if it's even better? And here we are again. (laughs) I can't bear to think of my dead friend, but I don't mind rereading a few things that have nothing to do with him and that always move me to tears. The grief reservoir empties to a manageable level. In this way, I can mourn him without having to think about him. There will come a time when people decide you've had enough of your grief and they'll try to take it away from you. You'll never know what your mother went through. I've known a few people who approached the act as a perfectible art I've known some great perverts, too. Others were in love. Desire abandoned them all. It's the ones I didn't fuck or didn't fuck enough or haven't fucked enough that I still dream about. In ninth grade, I was too afraid to speak to the boy I loved, so I mailed him a black paper heart every week for a year. I wasn't afraid of him. I was afraid of my feeling. It was more powerful than God. If we'd ever spoken, it might have burned the whole place down. I've never seen a ghost, and I don't believe in them. I might see one tonight, but even then, I wouldn't believe in ghosts. I'd believe in that ghost. Just before the poetry reading starts, I ask the overgrown boy sitting next to me why he likes poetry, what happened to him, and he says, I went to war. The affair is over, but at least things have gone somewhere, if only into oblivion. 
and maybe oblivion is what I wanted all along. The dark owns everything, but our sun comes out often enough that we think the universe is half dark, half light. When the worst comes to pass, the first feeling is relief. And now, Elizabeth McCracken. <laughs> I've had such a great time this week with my my students and, and my fellows at the Castle Marn. I'm particularly happy that the it's the Castle Marn and not the Marn Castle. <laughs> where they have autographed pictures of Kenny Loggins and Tiny Tim. And I like to dream they were there together. As unlikely as all of us who are there. Sorry, I'm going to grab my water before I am. <laughs> Um, so I did something ill-advised in my class this morning. Actually, I probably do something ill-advised in my class every morning. But in this case, I was talking about reading, and people asked me what I was going to read, and somehow I got the idea, because maybe some smart Alex said it. I don't think so. I think I made this up. That I should read something I'd never read before. So this is a little tiny bit um, from... I finished a maybe medium draft of a novel um, last week. And the good thing about what I'm reading is that even though it's two little sections from the middle of this novel, it has no characters who have any consequence. Like, mostly the novel is about a bowling alley in Massachusetts, and there's no bowling in these. You you know how when you start talking at the beginning of a reading and you say, all you need to know, and your brain shuts off when you hear that because you go... Screw you. I don't need to know anything. Um, So you don't really need to know anything for these two pieces. Um, uh, The only thing you need to know for the first sentence um, is that there is an octagonal house in a sort of a middle-sized town in Massachusetts, and the book takes place over the 20th century, but it doesn't exactly matter when these two little sections occur. And the, the octagonal house was built in 1902. The octagon still stood in those days, boarded up by the city, a shipwreck. Then a colony of birds nested in the Belvedere. Nocturnal, pelagic, monogamous, mysterious. They fed upon the open sea. They tended their nests at night. Ordinary dun-colored birds, but nobody knew what they were or what they ate. The Audubon Society wrote to City Hall... Something must be done about the house, they said. We'll tear it down, said City Hall. We've been meaning to look into it for some time. They just had to write to the owner first. You can't, said the Audubon Society. Not now. Why not? We thought these birds were extinct. To see one... Are you sure you saw it? Yes, said the Audubon Society coldly. Quite sure, as sure as we can be. Now, these birds only come in land to breed... Like sailors, said the old woman at City Hall. (laughs) Some people, said the Audubon Society, say they're the ghosts of drowned sailors. They hover over the ocean to feed. They patter. They flutter. It's amazing to see if you could see it, but mostly you can't. And they're extinct. We thought the cross-rumped what we have here was. The ringed might be, the New Zealand almost certainly. We know so little of these birds. 
then how do you know they're them? They are terrible at walking, said the Audubon Society, ignoring the question. They never really do. Their legs are so weak. But their wings, they can fly forever, or so we think. Amazing birds. Little married couples. They trade off incubation of the egg. Father, then mother, then father, then mother. Just the one egg? One egg is enough, said the Audubon Society in a prim voice. The old gentleman at City Hall believed in the birds. He'd seen something flying home to the belfry at night. What the old man thought. There were birds in the octagon. And if the Audubon Society believed they were these extinct birds, then they were. The belief made it so. It was like love. But the old woman at City Hall had once been a young woman at City Hall. She'd been there in 1909 when the Salford Devil had been sighted skulking along the squares at night, killing cats, terrifying women, shrieking at motor cars. This is maybe something I should have told you about. There's like a cryptid, uh, yeah, a, an imaginary creature that people see in this town. Um, yeah, you do, you do need to know that. <laughs> City Hall had offered a bounty. What people brought in? An eight-foot gutshot snake. A small boy with his bellowing mother who wanted to teach him a lesson. I have the sulfur devil here. I've come to ask the mayor to throw him in jail. <laughs> a curious foreign man presented a kangaroo. Where did he get it? Painted the same line green as the gas station, with a pair of wings fashioned out of a bifurcated umbrella. <laughs> Most people who brought their devils forgot about the wings, but the wings were the essential part. The foreign man was deported. The kangaroo's fate is unrecorded. One teenage girl brought in a dead bat dressed in a dull satin wedding dress, veiled, bouquet, side split to make room for its own born wings. The Salford devil said the then young woman of City Hall before she looked closer and saw the beauty of the folded ears, the furred cheeks. The girl was hurt. She cuddled the thing. No, lady, she's an angel. I found an angel. We didn't ask for angels, said the woman. No rewards for angels, and I mean none. A bat was a bat. A bird was a bird. You couldn't make up a species by calling it by name. Not petrol for St. Peter, nor any of the other names the seabirds were known by. Water witch, satinite, satinique, oiseau de diable, bird of the devil, little rock. I'm pausing because this next section happens like 100 pages later, but that really doesn't make a difference. <laughs> this is maybe like a sign that, um, as often happens when I read from novels and project in, in process, that these are the sections that will actually come out of the book later on because um, they're not that attached to every, anything. So this is sort of a bootleg reading, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> in North Salford, that's the name of the city, in North Salford, by the Fens, lived a woman who could not stop adopting wild animals. This was in the olden days. As a child, she took in frogs and snakes and pantry mice, then rats, a raccoon, a possum. She eyed a skunk, but drew the line. <laughs> the animals chewed the walls of her little house. It was their house, too. The neighbors called the police. 
Humans were not designed to live with wild animals, the visiting policeman said to the woman. That's exactly what they were designed for, said the woman. That policeman didn't understand. He had never fallen asleep with the bulk of a raccoon in his bed. That humped heat off the humped back, the chatter, the weight of animals, their tails. She wanted her own tail. She dreamt of it. And when she woke up in her bed tailless, she felt amputated, as though something that was by rights hers had been taken away. At least she could live with the tails of others. Sometimes there were two raccoons in the bed, and one spring a set of kits. If animals weren't meant to live in houses, how come they learned to open the refrigerator, work the kitchen faucets? She wasn't a bad-looking woman, said the neighbors. She could marry, have children, as though the dreams of other people were hers, as though what other people thought was attractive was likewise attractive to a raccoon. She preferred animals. She dreamt, like animals did, of chasing things and undeserved beatings. At the end of her life, she wasn't old. She was never meant to be. She found an animal on the edge of the fence, a sweet-faced wild cat, big as a German shepherd. Or was it a wild dog? No, not wild. The animal had an air of domesticity. It must have been forsaken by another human. It came snuffling up. It reminded her of the possum she'd taken in ten years before, whom she had named in her head Sugar, though she never said names aloud. Perhaps she was discovering a new species. It had human eyes, hunched therianthropic posture like a little accountant, a black, damp, leatherette nose. She dreamt of owning a nose like that, too, a cold, wet, animal schnoz that telegraphed love and health. An understanding passed between the woman and the creature. She turned. It followed. Two weeks later, she was found on her kitchen floor, kicked to death, throat torn out. Whatever had done the job had broken the kitchen door from the inside and was never caught. We warned her, the police said to the newspaper. Young women across Salford read the story and took it to heart. When the authorities come to your house and say, no more, take it seriously. Listen to your neighbors, your relatives. Even so, they respected the torn apart woman. To have something you were willing not only to die for, but be killed by. They imagined the woman on her kitchen floor, knocked down and bleeding, offering her throat, thinking, Ah, you see, my townspeople, I am not dying alone. Thanks. You guys, did we say this was going to be amazing? And did we deliver? Thank you guys. Amazing. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others.
For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.